No mai, haere mai, ahi ahi mari e koto, ko Charlotte Graham Maclay tine. I'm Charlotte Graham Maclay, and welcome to this Word Christchurch session, The Body Issue, this evening, supported by the New Zealand Book Council. And I also want to acknowledge the mana whenua of Oto Tahi, nai tua hurere. Um, before we go any further, I'd just like to introduce very briefly, and we'll introduce them properly later, uh, the writers and performers and artists who will be speaking to you this evening. Uh, up here with me at the moment um, is Sonia Renee Taylor, Annalise Jockins, Helen Heath, and Tay Tibble. And in some seats down the front to join us later on, because we do not have enough chairs or microphones, so we're going to do a bit of a musical chairs and microphones dance later on. Um, we've got Ray Shipley, uh, Kirsten McDougall will be joining us later from another session, Juno Dawson, and Daisy Speaks. And you will be able to direct questions to any of these people at the end of the session, so we'll make sure we leave plenty of time for that. Um, I've, I've been thinking about this topic a lot, well, like recently and also my whole life. Um, and um, Virginia Woolf um, in On Being Ill wrote, with a few exceptions, literature does its best to maintain that its concern is with the mind, that the body is a sheet of plain glass through which the soul looks straight and clear, and save for one or two passions such as desire and greed, is null and negligible and non-existent. On the contrary, the very opposite is true. All day, all night, the body intervenes. And that's still true. And while there is more space in our storytelling now for bodies, the range of bodies accepted in our storytelling still seems incredibly narrow, both figuratively and at times literally. And the eight writers who are with us tonight are blazing really exciting and interesting and at times shocking and provocative and awesome new narratives for bodies in space. And so I'm thrilled to welcome them tonight. Um, and reading for us first is Sonia Renee Taylor, an author, activist, and the founder and radical executive officer, or REO, I guess, <laughs> of The Body Is Not An Apology, a digital media and education company that examines the intersections of radical self-love and social justice issues. Please welcome Sonia. Kia ora, everyone. Yesterday, a facilitator asked me to share a physical movement that represented my inherited body joy and shame. My mother, father, grandmother's, great grandfather's slave shame. The question made heat coil around my throat, filled my chest with sand and lead. I was afraid. I have performed on stages across the globe in front of thousands of people, and in this circle of 15 folks, I was only fear. When I closed my eyes and let my body unfurl in heat, what came out was a flailing, flesh-curdling scream that caused building staff to come close the door to the room we were in. The wail, the thrashing of my body was not my own. It was 100,000 bodies in my one body. It was the sum energetic expulsion of what it is to be in this black, queer, fat woman's body. 
Words created to describe the disease of me. Words I have tried to take back. Always knowing they are there to remind me what is to be hated, ignored, invisible, feared, frustrated with, thought stupid, thought lazy, thought less than less than less than less. I began crying last night and could not stop. Every time I actually allowed a thought to root in my body, the weeping began again. It is here now as I try to type this and make you believe my pain, a pain most never think about. Some days I fantasize about stabbing myself in the gut with my fancy kitchen knives in front of a group of white people in a crowded San Francisco restaurant at the peak of restaurant week. I often consider what it would be like to fuck the man I thought I loved, who once raped me out of my sleep, the person I fuck when I hate myself the most. I often think of fucking him on the dinner table in the middle of a nice white family's meal in Berkeley, while they eat their organic broccoli. I imagine him pounding into me, hands cupping my ass, telling me I'm getting fat, telling me about the size of his real girlfriend's pussy, the girl lighter than me, with hair like a white woman, tears pooling on the tablecloth. I considered eating my mother's ashes after her heart gave up on being a black woman in America. I often have chest pains. I think one day my heart will explode too. When I am 53 and heavy with the whole cream hatred this country has poured into me. Literally, today, there is a rich white woman making dresses for rich white women with Oprah's naked body on the front of them. Oprah is fat in some, she is screaming in others. She is the richest woman in the world and she is a naked slave on the front of a rich white woman's dress. Always the mammy, a billion dollar mammy, a fat black subhuman to gawk and guffaw at. Literally, today, a famous white girl who doesn't like her body hired many black women and paid them well, I assume, to dance for her, to be her body by proxy, without the shame having to live on her flesh, without the centuries-long scroll of filth words written on her creamy skin, oh, to be pure and white and indignant while these beautiful black beasts bounce their asses as exclamation marks to her statement. Last week, a black girl needed help but we don't ever get to need that, do we? So she got what us black girls who knock on doors too early in the morning get killed. She got killed for needing help. Renisha McBride was not allowed to need help. Sonia Renee Taylor is not allowed to need help. This week, I listened to a room full of very nice white people at a racial equity training tell me, the only black person in the room, that they never thought, never think about me, about the lives of black people, that they didn't know how hard it was, that they were just so naive. I have a PhD in whiteness. 
I had to get that degree to live like I do in this nice rented duplex in the middle of constant gunshots, helicopters, sirens that run me down from morning till night. I speak fluent whiteness, and it is why I have $100,000 in student loans, a master's degree, a 20-year-old BMW parked in my garage. I speak so much whiteness that I have a few thousand dollars in the bank and six dead black boy cousins killed before the age of 25. And the really nice white people who never think about my life or the lives of black people. I know that I shouldn't say this. It will make them uncomfortable. It will make me an exception to this cliche of blackness that they would all assume anyway if they actually ever thought about me. It will make them confused about why I'm crying as I write this. See, I'm not those black people. I know whiteness so much that I can convince them I have escaped my blackness, that I am different, that we are all the same, except why can't I stop crying? But blackness is an elective no one takes, except the curious, the guilty by association, the few who want their humanity back. But no one will assign you the class unless by birth. I am ashamed when I think of how I wanted to be a little white girl for 30 years. A beautiful blonde white girl since before I even knew what blonde or white or girl was. I am ashamed of all the people I have fucked because I could never be a white girl. That I knew I was never going to be beautiful before I knew the word for beautiful. When it was just a white girl with blonde ponytails kissing her shoulders, I knew I was the opposite of that. I am ashamed of the residue of that longing that still lives on my skin. There is nothing I will say here that will make you know what it is to carry a whole world's hate, to be pregnant and overdue with it, to be told you will always be on the brink of a delivery that will never come. Every day, I have to decide to keep living in a world that is at best indifferent to my decision to do so, and at worst, a world that will shoot me in my face if I get too close to needing them to see me. And this is just one week, one week. Thank you very much. That was an incredibly generous way to open the session. And um, I, I'm tempted to just start talking about that now. But <laughs> let's hear some more readings and we'll get there. Um, Annalise Jokins is from Northland and lives in Wellington. I think I just said your name wrong. I've said it right so many times in my life. Jokums, right? Yeah, Annalise Jokums. Why, why did it come over me? Okay, I don't know. Um, is from Northland and lives in Wellington. She is the author of Baby, which won the Hubert Church Best first book award for fiction very recently. Yeah. Um, Anya's throwing whatever lunch is on the stove. Cynthia's lying on the bed and she sticks her foot up in the air. What do you think of this? What? 
my foot. Anahita turns. It's all right. Cynthia raises her eyebrows and waggles it. She worms her body on the warm, sun-heated bed into the blankets. With her eyebrows raised, she waggles it faster and faster till Anahita says, it's good. Cynthia stops then. Thanks, it is, yeah. Anahita turns the heat down on the stove and stands looking at Cynthia, at her body. I had bunions, Cynthia tells her, provokingly, you wouldn't think it, but I did. Anahita leans back on the bench. Bunions, she repeats. And I've got a sensitive tummy, Cynthia adds quickly. Wet ankles too, sometimes I just fall right over. She rests her foot down on the bed and pulls her shirt up to reveal her tummy. I can drink those big bottles of apple juice, but I'll tell you what, I shouldn't. <laughs> if, I drink a small, if, if I drink a small bottle of apple juice, I can't jog anywhere or even walk quickly or have sex with anyone for four hours afterwards, minimum. <laughs> Anahita looks down tenderly, as if Cynthia's belly were a kitten and nods. You can touch it, Cynthia tells her. Anahita squats down beside the bed and puts her fingers lightly on Cynthia's stomach. My body's a real disaster, in some ways, Cynthia tells her, not showing off, just stating a fact. Anahita nods and shifts her fingers like a whirlpool around Cynthia's tummy button. Anyway, Cynthia says, you can touch my armpits through my shirt. Anahita looks at her and her fingers pause. Cynthia feels her lips pull in, but she's making sure not to be embarrassed. I like it sometimes, she says. I touch my own armpits sometimes. It's hot. The blankets are so hot under her and her face must be like a capsicum. She lifts her arm up above her head and smiles playfully. Come on, love, she says. Get to it. Anahita pauses a moment but doesn't laugh. She leans over Cynthia and with the long fingers of both her hands touches Cynthia's armpit. It tickles splendidly, like Cynthia's a pet rabbit, but she makes sure not even to smile. She can feel her eyes and lips opening, and she touches the inside of her bottom lip with her tongue. Anahita pauses her fingers, and Cynthia nods for her to keep moving them. It's sexual, she whispers bravely. Anahita nods, puzzled and hopefully pleased. Okay, Cynthia says. That's enough, they lose sensitivity after a while. They gaze at each other. Cynthia notices again four or five stray hairs at Anahita's eyebrows and her long blinking eyelashes and she realises she's in love. Definitely. Anahita stays close for a moment longer, then goes to circle the spoon around in the pot. She shifts from foot to foot, like dancing. Now, Helen Heath, down the end there, is a poet, essayist and academic who received critical acclaim for her award-winning 2012 poetry collection, Graft. Her uncanny new book of poems, Our Friends Electric, is about the intersection between people and technology, and I think she has a few of them to read for us today. Thanks. Anatomical Venus, circa 1790. She is always in a moment of bliss, cheeks a little flushed, lips a little swollen from a passionate kiss. 
small pert breasts and belly lifted up and off to reveal lungs, liver, intestines. He can't stop admiring her beauty. Entwined in her fingers is a lock of her hair tied with a pale blue ribbon. Around her neck, a string of pearls. The flayed girl's eyes look heavenwards. For her, the gaze is the knife. He pulls out her intestines of wax to reveal her uterus, complete with a small fetus, which he strokes gently with his thumb. Illuminated, circa 1982. When I grew breasts, they were illuminated by the eyes of men on the street. Each whistle seemed to make them grow and grow. Each stare undid a button on my shirt until it was flapping in the breeze and my bra became transparent. I was every man's mother and lover. I was 12. I was a Greek statue. I was a goddess. They were all Pygmalion falling in love with my breasts. They couldn't help their nature or their right to run their hands over these breasts, lit up for all the world. My body as a leaky vessel. At some point, I realized the vessel was lying in a great bed of sand. I climbed into the cabin and looked out the portholes. All I could see was sand. I cried and cried. My tears ran out the portholes, tears and mucus, tears and mucus. Time passed. The reader yawned. The boat began to rock, to float. I had cried an ocean. The fuel tank was empty, and I didn't know how to operate the sails, so I drifted. I collected rainwater in a bucket on the deck and caught undersized fish. The cleanest way to relieve myself was to hang my ass over the side. Precarious in a large swell, inevitably I fell from the vessel. As the ship drifted out of sight, I floated on the surface. I could feel myself distending to huge proportions. I slapped a lazy flipper on the water, flicked my tail and dived. Time passes differently underwater. One day I surface, clearing my blowhole. On the horizon is a shape I remember, a vessel. A harpoon drives a puncture wound. I bleed a trail of burly behind. Of course, the sharks, the sharks. A bite, another bite. I'm whittled away until a resemblance of past lives washes up on a beach, on a sand dune, the sun bleaching the dry bones of me, a fragment picked up by a child and taken home. The last one, spilling out all over. I ask if you would like a body. You say, no, I'm beyond bodies now. I'm ready to be fluid spilling out all over. I'm ready to spread myself so thin that I'm a membrane over the world. I'm not ready. I take off my socks and shoes and walk over a patch of grass very slowly. 
I stand, feeling a slight chill and damp, and wriggle my toes, digging them into the dirt. I kneel in the dirt. I lie in the dirt. My head turns sideways, looking into the grass with an ant's eye view. I stay there a while in the grass jungle. Thank you. And in fact, that is a book about that has so many different perspectives on the body, wildly different. That you, you almost, we almost need a reading of the whole book to get the, to get the full range. Um, but perhaps you can all buy it outside later and, and read it because there's a lot of cool stuff about the connections between body and technology in there as well. Um, and finally, for this little part of readings, um, Tay Tibble is a writer and poet from Wellington. In 2017, she completed an MA in creative writing at the International Institute of Modern Letters, after which she was the 2017 recipient of the Adam Foundation Prize. Po Pocahangatis is her first book, and she's got some readings from that cross today. Yes. <laughs> Hello. I'm just going to read um, one poem. It's called um, Vampires Versus Werewolves, and... Um, it's about Twilight. <laughs> so I was just trying to gauge if um, everyone here knew, like, what Twilight was, because <laughs> otherwise this doesn't work. <laughs> Vampires versus werewolf. What was it like to grow up during the twilight season? My high school was surrounded by pine trees and a dank fog from a student body of chain smokers. It was romantic. In science, we didn't study mitosis, but the purple swimming pools on each other's necks. They sprouted spotty like hydrangeas out of navy v-neck sweaters. I grew up worrying that strangers could read my mind. I couldn't keep my thoughts clean or my head in. No one could. We were just two sides of the same hood, red and blue, white and black. We had brown boys running around topless during pee and calling themselves the wolf pack and the white girls took them home to see if their parents would bear their teeth. <laughs> so the boys were served up like hunks of raw meat, but at least they got to eat out at fancy restaurants and in bedrooms covered in posters from Cream and Dolly magazines. I had Edward Cullen on my wall. Taylor Lautner dated Taylor Swift. Robert Patterson dated FKA Twigs. And I guess I see myself in her in the same way that I see myself in the twigs on the ground, organic, snapped brown. Brown reminds me of the leaves and the sausage roll wrappers in the gutters. You see, we used to say gutted when something bad or funny sad happened. You left your phone on the bus, gutted. Teacher kept you in, gutted. Can't come to the party because you have to babysit while your siblings, babysit your siblings while your mother is at housey, gutted. <laughs> I think we were trying to say gutted as if we felt as though our stomachs had been knived and emptied out. Because it's easy to be seen as the big bad wolf, 14, chronically shy, anorexic. You make yourself sick with lusting. All you want is that pale sparkling on the television and it makes you do things out of character or it would if you had a character, and that's why fingers end up down throats and up skirts and pointing in the wrong direction. It's the boy who cried wolf, but in reverse, you cry sheep and nobody believes you're bleating, they don't want to. I remember once, after swimming, 
A girl was sobbing because she was teased about the thick, dark hair growing like a forest across her arms and her stomach. And now everybody draws on their eyebrows just like hers. And it was sports day, but after that, the administration banned the girls from wearing crop tops and bikinis, but the boys still ran around in white fronts and purple acrylic paint. And the boys were running from their mothers and the girls who looked like their mothers. Because you're just not exotic to people who look like you, and you always want what you can't have. Edward Cullen only wanted Bella Swan because he couldn't read her mind. That and she smelled like wild strawberries or some bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> He wouldn't have wanted her, wanted her if she was like those other girls whose minds he was always staring at, but like always reading like a teen magazine or a trashy book. Well, he was an angsty, stone-cold son of a bitch, always flaking on her, ignoring her, telling her to like leave him alone, and then like showing up in her bedroom, uninvited, <laughs> in the middle of the night, watching her sleep, spying on her, generally being weird and mean and obsessive. And all of this was on top of constantly telling her how badly he wanted to suck the life from her already lifeless veins. Because <laughs> we crave otherness and we hate otherness. There was a boy who would meet another boy in the pine trees, but after accidentally making eye contact in the hallway, he put that boy's head through a locker. And in twilight, the vampires and wolves made a pact to live in peace as long as they left each other alone. But then high school happened and we liked the look of one another's teeth. I think not the only person on this panel even to be inspired by Twilight to create, because I read somewhere that Juno um, kind of originally got into young adult fiction writing after reading Twilight. Yeah, because yeah. I couldn't work out why Bella didn't have any mates. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, responsible for a lot of great literature. So to get into, um, so most of these, most of the readings tonight are a surprise to me as well. <laughs> so, um, so to get into, I guess at the beginning, um, one of the things that's really striking about what you shared tonight, and then also even actually a lot of your book, Tay, is the gaping chasm between where kind of mainstream society thinks it has gotten to on body acceptance and the actual lived experiences of people in the world who aren't part of mainstream body acceptance. Um, and I understand that this is, this is essentially what, you, what your book's about, the body is not an apology. Um, and so I just wondered whether you could talk a little bit about, I mean, you must meet a lot of... Um, young women of colour through workshops that you do and that kind of thing. A little bit about the effect that that has on people, I guess, emotionally and psychically and physically, to, to be told on one hand that, that we've come so far in feminism and body acceptance and that sort of thing, and then to have in real life the kind of experiences that you described in, in that essay you read for us today. Um, yeah, I think that uh, in my work I find that there's an entire sort of section of the world that just doesn't see themselves or see body acceptance as anything having to do with them. Like that's not 
like that that is for sort of you know like size 14 cis able-bodied white women right like that's what that is for and so I don't even think I mean and it's an interesting place for me in my work because I feel like I'm constantly trying to bridge like what does body positivity mean um, if black bodies are still indiscriminately killed by the police um, extrajudicially? What does body positivity mean when our spaces are still completely inaccessible to disabled people, right? And so um, the intention of the work, right, is to, is to make visible that which we continue to try to make invisible. Um, but I, there's also this piece, it's really, I mean, and I think it was kind of what I was speaking to in that piece, that there's, there's this crazy making that happens in trying to explain again and again and again and again your experience to people who are committed to not see your experience. Um, and part of the not seeing your experience is, um, is it is what allows them to continue to live their life unbothered. Uh, Raj in the last sentence just said, uh, in the last session, said something that I thought was just so absolutely true, which was that like, the function of privilege exists on your inability to actually have to look at anything other than your own existence. Um, and it's what, it holds it up, it's the structure. And so, you know, there's this sort of like, gaslighting that happens, um, particularly you know, in the US for me as a person who, whose life experiences in the US, where people are constantly telling you that what you're experiencing isn't really what you're experiencing. Mm. Mm. You know, and I'm like, what the f you know, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's like, oh my god, and then that's, you know, that's not a US. You know, I'm, I'm so clear that's <laughs> yeah. not a US thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the piece of it, you know, that is how many times, and then like the frustration when the 789th time that I tell my lived experience, I'm not nice to you, because I told it 788 times before, um, you know, then it's like, you're being mean to me, I, I don't have time for this, I'm not gonna be involved in this work because you're mean to me. And it's like, where the, where the fuck have you been for the 788 other times? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the, I guess the physical toll that that I mean, the, even your your poems speak to that as well. The the fact that the fact that w how other people are living their lives has a physical effect on your body, right? And that is something that I mean that that poem about um, about being twelve years old and and having men start to treat you in a certain way and the way that that takes a physical toll on you. Um, yeah, well, literally, their yeah. hands are on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, do you feel like that's something that isn't... Because uh, these days we're talking a lot about the physical toll um, or the toll that has been taken on men who have lost their jobs because they've done, like, bad or at times illegal things. But there isn't... Yeah, exactly. But there, there doesn't seem to be, right, the same level of conversation about the toll taken on the people that they've done the things to. Yeah, well, Would who's holding the narrative? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I guess your poems kind of discuss this as well, Tay, because it's, they're very much about the colonisation of, of young Māori women's bodies in New Zealand and the effect that that has on you. 
Um, was that something that you, growing up, had found in other narratives of New Zealand writing, or did you feel like you were kind of going out there on your own with it? I didn't read very much New Zealand writing growing up. <laughs> <laughs> um, or even just talking I, about maybe, it, like, yeah. Yeah. Were there people who you talked to about this stuff growing up? Um, just my, probably just my mum. Right. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, like, I'm like a fourth, uh, this is like a contentious word, but I'm like a fourth generation, like, half-caste, so I'm like the half-caste daughter of half-caste daughter of a half-caste daughter kind of thing. <laughs> so, um... <clears throat> Having that experience is like, um, I always felt like, yeah, I mean, I felt like I was quite lucky to grow up um, having my particular mum because she already had been in her body and, um, you know, lived her life in New Zealand and that kind of sense that she kind of knew how to, like, have these discussions with me and um, around how things were going to be weird or different for me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just being brown in New Zealand. I think, yeah, I think it is really important to the work. Um, it's something that comes, I think about quite frequently, is how, as a post-colonial society, where we've had one, we've had Pakeha have dominion over Māori for years and years and years, and um, maintain powers, how that plays out in interpersonal relationships. And I think that's something that, um, I don't know, doesn't get acknowledged very much. And I think that, um, yeah, if you're a young wahine, <laughs> yeah, um, those experiences are very real. Um, people, yeah, having like, I, I really do think it's like a colonial entitlement to your body. Mm. Mm. Do you have young wahine like talk to you or, oh, I guess in these days, like Facebook message or Instagram DM you and, and, and talk about this stuff when they've read your work? Hard out, hard out. That's been like actually like the really, that's been like the best bit of um, having my book out now, it's like, yeah, I get heaps of messages from just, like, young wild over the country on, um, like, Instagram or Facebook, just reaching out and, um, or, like, putting bits off on their Insta from my book and stuff like that. <laughs> it's been really, really nice, but, yeah, um, and just, it's very, that's the best part of it. It's very validating to know that, like, um, that my experiences aren't unique and that, like, um, lots of wahine are telling me that it matters, that, like, it's been acknowledged. <laughs> it's so nice. <laughs> And I don't think we talk about that enough because there's such a, there's a paradigm of critics, right? And I always, I think about that amazing um, Tusiata Avia poem about, is it notes, notes for critics or something like that, where she kind of talks about reviewers and says, you know, if you had, the, sorry, I'm going to like ruin it, but go read the poem, it's really good, it's online. Um, but, you know, if you had three poetry books by women of colour, would you review them all together? Like, would you use the word exotic? That kind of thing. And so there's so much discussion of, like, what reviewers think of, and not enough, I think, of what the people that the books were actually for think of the book. So I'm glad to hear that you had that. Also, possibly an experience you have had, Annalise, of, um, of some critics perhaps reading it and not really getting it, but then hopefully, do you, I mean, do you hear from, do you hear from young women who have seen themselves in the particular kind of uh, womanness and sexuality in your book who kind of recognise themselves? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the book is all about neediness, I guess. Um, 
<laughs> and I don't know, that's not really something that appeals to men. Um, you can read about that online. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I don't know, I, 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 I really like that Virginia Woolf quote. I think there's something about, and like what you were saying about turning up on someone's, someone, someone, someone turns up on someone's doorstep and they have, they have need and that just frightens the person. And I think like the idea of gaslighting, I think we don't live in our ideals. I think we live in our, in our bodies and I think we maybe live more in our feelings than we do in our thoughts. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that kind of like, I, I think the more that we can put the, the body into our prose, the more that we can sort of not touch reality, but just touch the idea that I don't, I don't know, we'd like, I, I guess, I don't know, I, I, I really think of the book as being, a, oh, this is a rant, but I, really, I, 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 I think of the book as being about whiteness and sometimes I've, I've lived in different places and I've gone to different schools and at some schools I haven't been conscious of my whiteness at all and at other schools I've been extremely conscious of it. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm just, yeah, and I, I, think, I think the more that we come back to the body, the more that we come back to the, the different realities of, yeah. I'll stop now. <laughs> well, because that, that, that sex scene that you read out today is a really, it's a unique sex scene, and then it's kind of juxtaposed by Cynthia, your, your protagonist, um, mm. watching porn, and she watches it for so long that the, the woman's bum starts to look like a pudding. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I just wondered whether this was something you'd been thinking about for a long time, like how physicality actually happens versus how we're taught that physicality happens. Yeah, I mean, I think in the beginning of, book, of the book, Cynthia's like a sexy girl, yeah. um, and sort of throughout the book, because she's kind of stuck on this boat and it's not a very healthy lifestyle, she becomes less and less of a sexy girl. Um, and then she kind of is just watching porn of other sexy girls and sort of disinhabiting herself in some way. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a great just, juxtaposition and, again, something I hadn't, I hadn't read elsewhere before. Um, I wanted to ask you about the second-to-last poem you read. Was that the leaky... The leaky vessel. vessel. Yeah, yeah. yeah, because you said in your email to me, although I had suspected, that it was also about menstruation, among, among other things. Oh, yeah, everything yeah, that comes yeah, out. Yeah, everything that comes out. Um, and it feels like we jumped from this, and like societally, a discussion of, of menstruation jumped from periods that are dis disgusting to now we have this like obsession with everyone having to have an ethical period and you have to use like a moon cup and like 100% organic everything but we never actually had the bit in the middle where we where we actually talked about women's experiences of their bodies and well I talked about them with my friends I don't know yeah. I mean, maybe you just we, we don't get to read about them like yeah. when you opened up with that quote and you were talking about how um, there's sort of there was no discussion about being in a body in, in literature, but I mean mm. that's a, a sort of a privileged white man's um, narrative, isn't it? Like when you're in a woman's body once a month, at least you are aware that you're in a body, and there's no way ar around that. I mean you're constantly reminded, <laughs> oh I'm in a body, yeah. Um, 
and, and I was thinking about that a lot when I was, I was writing this book, because I was thinking a lot about, you know, can you, is it possible to know the world without a body? And, and thinking about what, what happens when you're not in that body and how you experience the world. And, um, yeah, uh, but I, I think that, I mean, well, if you, in the end, I decided that, yes, you do need a body. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just think that it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very gendered because it is so hard to really sort of pretend that you're not in a, a body. But I think that when you start, when there are young women with eating disorders, that's a point at which you are trying to escape your body. And if you can suppress your period by stopping eating, then you can pretend, you know, take another step away from your body. And, and yeah, how many steps away from your body can you take? And if you upload your mind to the cloud and you've, you know, fully, fully left your body, then... How, how are you interacting with the world? I mean, we, we know the world through our sensations. Uh, we, we interact with, with things and objects in the world. And if you're not interacting with objects in the world, then how are you gaining your, your knowledge? And that's, that's how they're building AI nowadays. So uh, artificial intelligence, um, the, 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 um, they, they re reached a plateau with developing artificial intelligence because they were trying to do the whole brain in a jar um, development. And then when they realised, oh, we need intelligence and knowledge is gathered through our interactions with yeah. things in the world. Oh, yeah. so, so when they put um, artificial intelligence into a robotic body and that body could experience the physical world, that's when it started taking leaps um, in pro of progress. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, that was a big segue. <laughs> no, it was awesome. Um, and Parents now I really robots. want to bring it back to something that Sonia said. However, um, I think that we have to move on to our second group of people, but I have like 100 more questions for each of you, but we'll throw it open to the audience at the end and perhaps they will have some overlap. Um, but thank you all very much for sharing. Um, it has been awesome thus far, and we'll just have a little switch over. We'll be back with you in a moment. You made it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, we will keep on with it. Uh, <laughs> so our first speaker for the second half of this event is Ray Shipley who is an Ōtotahi-based comedian, poet, and librarian. Home crowd. <laughs> now, <laughs> um, just a moment. I, I would like to read out the rest of Ray's bio because there's a couple of really exciting things in here. Um, along with telling jokes, Ray coordinates Faultline Poetry Collective. Crochets for cash. <laughs> um, so I guess you can ask Ray about that later. Um, and makes a very good cup of tea, which is an underrated life skill. <laughs> Please welcome Ray. Hello. Uh, 
I've like been saying sorry a lot, and now I've replaced sorry with is that okay, which I think is even worse. Uh, so I was, was going to get up and be like sorry for standing, and now I'm going to be like I'm going to stand. Is that okay? Which is I, I think that's the same. It's the same, and I'm going to read off my phone. Is that okay? Just just both both terrible things to say. Um, so we can ignore that. Um, so this this is this is four very short little bits about uh, about living. Uh, in my body, uh, sort of. I'm not sure if it's accurate. Uh, <laughs> which is strange, because I wrote it today. No, I didn't write it today. Um, but I, I did write it, but I don't know if it's accurate. Uh, good. <clears throat> um, oh, the one thing you should know is that I used the, uh, the, the letter X, uh, which is kind of a, a play on how you can have like an F or an M on your passport, or now in some countries an X if you want. Um, cool. One. X is filling out a form for a new job and is asked to select a gender. This is not a simple task. Sometimes forms give X options. Sometimes X can choose gender indeterminate or unspecified or other. Not this form. This form has two choices, male and female. Sometimes the reason X is made to choose a gender is clear but more often it is not. This form is not for a medical examination. This form is not being filled out for statistical purposes. X would sometimes like to sink back into female like a warm winter coat, but when they try, it is scratchy and ill-fitting, and it doesn't suit at all. X checks female anyway. Two, X is learning the rules of wearing ties well in a busy and pretentious bar on a Thursday evening. You should clip the tie pin here, says X's father. Make sure it isn't too high. X's father is wearing a blue checked shirt and he is talking with his hands as well as a booming Scottish accent that turns heads sometimes. The end of the tie should just hit the top of your belt buckle. Did no one ever teach you that? X grins. <laughs> X grins, looking sharp. Together they sip their pinots. The conversation moves on. X wonders how different things would feel now if Dad had planted those seeds of fashion possibilities before X had asked for them. They are talking about the snow down south now, and X's father looks distant and a bit proud. Three, it's after 2 a.m. X is with friends in a sticky and loud nightclub. It's been a bourbon and coke night, sweet and strong and full of dancing but X is fading, the beginnings of a headache pressing against their eyeballs, a mouth lined with sugar. X pinballs their way to the bathrooms, adjusting their tie, combing back their hair. There's a hallway with two doors, ladies and gents. The ladies has a picture of a handbag, the gents has a picture of a pipe. X is carrying neither of those things. <laughs> X pushes on the first door, three cubicles, all taken. X waits, aware of every inch of their body, artificially flattish chest, a blazer, round face, no stubble, but three very long chin hairs, small, smooth hands, hips, hips, hips. X waits, anxious, stands with their legs closer together. Someone flushes, walks out, pulling her dress down, glaze-eyed. What the fuck are you doing here? She asks X. Four. X is off to the supermarket for some cold beer. The air is fresh and warm and the neighborhood is preparing for summer. A kid stares at X from behind a gate. 
He has muddy knees and a bucket of weeds and a red sun hat and a T-shirt with a truck on it. X smiles. The kid says, hey. The kid says, where are you going? The kid says, are you a boy or a girl? X imagines explaining that it's that kind of binary thinking that fuels toxic masculinity and impossible standards of femininity, imagines the kid's eyes widening as X tells them that the harsh ingrained binary of boy and girl means that he might not feel safe about crying, means that he one day won't be able to hug his father without saying no homo, means he will feel a passionate and inexplicable desire to play rugby even though he prefers singing and trucks and drawing than throwing and catching and jumping. Did you hear me? The kid says, are you a boy or a girl? X says yes and keeps walking. Thank you very much. Um, now, Kirsten McDougall, who has just come from the first half of an award ceremony, but has not yet attended the part where she finds out if she got the award, right? <laughs> she's, going back, she's going back for that after this. Um, is, uh, Kirsten is the author of Tess, a short novel set in Masterton, where she grew up, and The Invisible Rider, a series of inter interconnected short stories, which, in my opinion, best kind of short stories. She has also published essays and short fiction in New Zealand and internationally. Please welcome Kirsten. Kia ora tato. Um, I'm going to read a scene that takes place in Masterton um, just before daylight savings changes over, so it's a bit dark. It's on a Sunday night. She heard the men before she saw them. They were half a block away, and when she heard their shouty, bored bravado, she knew she should turn and walk away. But to do so would be to call them to her anyway, so she kept going. There were four of them. One leaned against a wall, the others stood holding tui cans and smoking, three competing for the, the attention of the one who was leaning. He was holding court, nodding or laughing every now and then at one of their jokes. He was short and would be good-looking if he wasn't so mean-looking. He was sprung tight, and his punches would weigh hard. He raised his brow at her and nodded to his mates at the woman walking with a pack on her back towards them. The other three turned round and laughed, and their laughter made her empty stomach clench. Hey, said one of them. Hey, girl, where are you going? He sounded lazy, as if, as if his mouth wouldn't open well enough. Shut up, spud. The leader spoke as a farmer does to keep his dogs in line. He was still leaning back, casual against the wall. She should have crossed the road, but she was so close now, just walking through them was as easy as walking off a cliff. Haven't seen you before. They were wasps, and simply by being there, she'd upset the nest. Oh, come on, can't you talk? Want a drink? It might loosen you up. They all laughed, and the one closest to her stepped forward and held his can out. What's wrong? Remember, mates, we're just having a drink, hanging. She was beside them now and could smell them. Stale beer, sour sebum, oversweet scent of pot. She kept moving, not fast, but moving and not looking, and then she was past them with her back to them, which felt worse. Hey! She knew without turning that it was the leader calling out, and a cold fear filled her, and she ran her finger over the loose metal shard she'd made on the middle ring of her right hand, her punching fist. She turned the shard so it sprang out when she killed her hand. She wouldn't look round until they forced her. 
My mates are trying to be friendly. Shit, girl, didn't your mother tell you it's rude to walk away when someone's talking to you? A pressure on her pack spun her round, one of them pulling her. She jerked away, making a yelping sound that embarrassed her. She should have been running now, but her pack weighed her down and she didn't want to dump what little she had. The guy grabbed at her again and tried to force and she tried to force him off, but he jumped back out of reach. She was awkward and slow. The leader had his face up close to hers. His breath was hot, his eyes large. It's rude to walk away when someone's talking to you. She could see it well enough, the blank eye of a boy who has learned not to care. Nothing on the surface, just a cold silence because anything in him would be pushed down so far it was no longer part of him. They were the most dangerous. All we wanted was to say hello. Her arms were still free, she could go for the eyes, force the, force the shard of the metal into the jelly of the eyeball, run the metal along the bridge of the nose so that it cut too as it moved into the other eye. He deserved to go blind. But her intent betrayed her and he swung his arm around her neck in a lock, stopping her from swinging out, forcing her head down to all, so that all she could see was the concrete she stood on and the feet, sorry, and the feet of two others that closed in and she was caught. Still, she brought her fist round as hard as she could, aiming for his stomach, genitals, any soft flesh she could connect with, but the ringer turned to the side and the blow she brought was nothing to cut with. You're a scrapper, aren't you, little bitch? One of them called his name, but he didn't let go and they called again. Let her go, Cody! Then she heard the car. She heard it stall abruptly and the door swing open and the feet of the other men move out of sight. The pressure went off her back and she straightened up. Lewis stood on the road, we had stopped his car. He was pointing the rifle directly at Cody. What the fuck are you bastards doing? She sprang off the footpath and towards the boot of his car to put some distance between her and the men. Get in the car. Lewis gestured at her but didn't take his eyes off them. Hey man, chill, it was nothing, said Cody. Didn't look like that to me, said Lewis. She opened the passenger door and got in the car. Lewis cocked the rifle. Cody held his hands up. Easy man, it was nothing. We're going, okay? You were pinning her down, you prick. How is that nothing? We're going. Come on, guys, we're going. Lewis, she said from inside the car, pleading. He got in the car, put the gun on the floor and started the engine. Are you okay? Her heart hammered against her ribs. Her T-shirt was wet with sweat. She was sitting now, but her legs still shook. What was okay? Not dead? Not raped? The bar was pretty low. Kind of, she said. He was shaking his head. He slammed his hands down on the steering wheel and gripped it for a few seconds. You don't have anywhere to stay, do you? She shook her head. She felt disconnected from the car and the sound of him speaking. Her body was back on the footpath, staring at the crack in the concrete where the leader forced her head down. She was preparing herself for whatever they would do next. She was taking herself out of herself so she wouldn't have to be there when they did it. Look, I have rooms to spare at my house. Rooms, just take one. He paused and then breathed out heavily. I don't mean you any harm. She was nodding and saying okay, but it was an automatic part of her. There were nerves in her skin and the sweat that covered it, but her mind had gone out the window, bird-like. such a powerful capturing of such a common, unfortunately, experience, I think. Um, and we'll come back to that later. Um, but next, we have uh, Juno Dawson, who is a multi-award-winning author of 11 books, 
which is ridiculous, <laughs> including the best-selling Spot the Difference and her recent adult memoir, The Gender Games, and also a book that a few of us were just raving about beforehand, which is a young adult novel called Clean, which is amazing. Uh, she is a regular media contributor on matters of sexuality, identity, literature, and education. Please welcome Juno. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I was going to read something else, but I'm going to I'm going to do like the full trans bit. It's like you've bought a ticket, but <laughs> you've you've come for the show. Um, so yeah, let's do it. It's called Body Talk. It's from the Gender Games. Can you remember how I went to the Attitude Awards in 2014, just before I publicly came out as trans? Yes. Good. You haven't read the books. So you don't know, but I did, and that didn't happen. <laughs> By that point, I was quite happy to tell people I was about to start my medical transition. I was still known as James, but was looking pretty androgynous. On my table at the awards dinner were Patrick Strudwick, journalist Owen Jones, some wanker of Celebrity Big Brother, and a member of a now disbanded girl group. I shan't name her. We got to talking over dinner, and while she was very sweet, after I told her I was transgender, she did say in her very best outdoors voice, So then, you having it all chopped off or what? <laughs> I mean, really? As the dearly departed Carrie Fisher recently demonstrated with her appearances in The Force Awakens, women's bodies are under a kind of scrutiny, always, that men's just aren't. Who cares if Han Solo looks more leathery than Louis Vuitton on Regent Street because Princess Leia failed to defy the natural law of aging? But trans women? I think our bodies are under phenomenal scrutiny, a scrutiny particularly focused on what's between our legs. Page turn. At the start of the televised trans revolution of 2013, both Orange is the New Black star Laverne Cox and RuPaul's Drag Race alumni Carmen Carrera were asked about their genitalia on breakfast television. Can you imagine? Welcome back to This Morning. Today we're joined by the cast of Call the Midwife. Tell us, ladies, who has the most flappy vagina? <laughs> and yet, I've been on news programs in the UK that do feel it's quite acceptable to ask those sorts of questions of both trans men and women. Last year, Channel 4 ran a hugely patronizing series of documentaries called Born in the Wrong Body, which I'm pretty sure was actually an episode of The X-Files, which <laughs> focused entirely on trans people as walking, talking genitalia. The gist was very much men who love women with dicks, or girls who actually want dicks. This is wildly, wildly inappropriate. With grace and poise, both Cox and Carrera told Katie Couric why they weren't willing to discuss their bodies on TV. One, it's inappropriate. Two, cisgender people, and especially cisgender men, don't have to talk about their bodies on TV, so neither should I. And three, it's creating a culture whereby trans people are both misunderstood and objectified. Misunderstood because people often make assumptions about trans people. Some news outlets still call us sex change patients, for instance. This assumes that all trans people are having one experience and that all of us are having surgeries. Depending on where you are in the process, a trans person may have had no medical interventions. Some transgender people may never have medical interventions if they don't want them. You guessed it. It's about identity. 
an identity, how you feel, how you've always felt, how you carry yourself, how you present yourself to the world has nothing to do with your genitals or what it says on your birth certificate. My birth certificate said I was a boy. It also said I was six pounds, two ounces. <laughs> Shit changes. <laughs> Is this a good place to briefly discuss public toilets? The argument about trans usage of public toilets boils down to a very few anti-trans voices saying, I don't want a penis in the ladies' loo. It's boring. Why must minority groups constantly have to defend super basic human rights? By the way, there are no recorded incidents of legally transgender women attacking anyone in a public toilet ever. Toilet cubicles are private anyway. It's not like anyone is asking to share some quality piss time. <laughs> Increasingly, many pubs and restaurants have unisex, single-occupancy bathrooms in any case. If you've been on a plane, you've used a fucking gender-neutral toilet. <laughs> Early in my transition, I had disgusted tuts and side-eye from women in the toilets at both Victoria and Waterloo toilets but not nearly as terrifying for them, I would imagine, as it would be for me right now to be in a men's one. Although I don't know. I just need a wee. I don't see why I should have to explain to my daughter, what, that you're a fucking bigger? I think she's gassed. <laughs> it's not my problem, it's yours. I can think of no other group in society right now sorry, the UK right now, other than possibly Muslims or EU migrants who have to continually justify the oxygen they use up more than trans women. And it is particularly trans women in this case as the are trans people safe question doesn't seem to extend to trans men who do not, we are told, pose a threat to men in public toilets. We'll discuss my post-transition sex life shortly, but I feel more objectified than I ever was when living as a man. Women are objectified all the time clothes, horses, sex toys, baby ovens, naked flesh all used to sell everything from shower gel to sandwiches. Trans women are different. Whole women reduced down to a single body part. Only with trans people, onlookers seem to think that what's happening in our knickers is some modern-day riddle of the Sphinx that must be solved at once. <laughs> and then you get people like Barry Humphreys, who made a fortune as a grotesque parody of womanhood, saying we mutilate ourselves if we do proceed medically. This conjures the image of desperate trans people bleeding on the floor like poor Penny in Dirty Dancing, having tried to hack at our genitals with rusty, rusty screwdrivers and cheese graters. Consenting adults seeking medical interventions for what many describe as birth defects is their business, because there are bodies. I also think referring to gender reassignment procedures as mutilation suggests that trans people are in some way unhinged and unable to make rational choices. We are, I assure you. Non-trans people weighing in with opinions about trans bodies is very much like men weighing in with opinions on childbirth. For all women, objectification is deadly. Literally, being an object, a thing, dehumanizes us. It strips away our souls, our names, our relationships, our individuality, our human, our personalities. If I'm not Juna Dawson, friend, daughter, chihuahua earner, author, and just some nameless tranny, I'm so much easier to discuss so much easier to troll on Twitter, so much easier to criticize, easier to mock, easier to batter, easier to rape, easier to kill. I'm not being a drama queen. It's true of all women. Various studies have shown there are correlations between the degree to which men objectify women and, for instance, how likely they are to coerce a partner into sex or blame a woman for rape. 
Statistics about violence against trans women are sobering. Last year, 44 trans women that we know of, especially transgender women of colour, died violent deaths. So, oh, it's just a tranny, right? No, it's 44 women. So, you may have come to read this book for a warts and all account of my transition, but if my bits did have warts, which they don't, I wouldn't be discussing them here. My transition started six years ago when I came out as a woman, and it's my life that's shifting, not just my body. And it's my body, and I can choose if I wish to keep it a secret. This isn't a coquettish fan dance where I'm trying to tease and conceal. It's just that by not talking, by refusing to discuss my genitalia, you might have to listen to what's on my mind. Thank you very much. Um, and finally this evening, we have Daisy Speaks, a youth advocate and proud descendant of Samoan orators. A specialist generalist, she straddles the cultural, government, community and education worlds, and poetry helps her to make sense of and navigate the tensions between them. We are in the thick of the semi-final battle of Thermopylae. Our reputation in war, undefeated, unmatched by any other Christchurch rugby league state. The Persians are invading. Their voices measure 100,000 decibels against our 300. Xerxes thunders, smash those fat girls, snickering his generals fill journals to the brims with criticisms. Their jokes fill enough pages to stitch into wings, willing us to fly close enough to the sun so that our tears would turn to steam and the wax burn on our shoulders. Shame. They laughed, <laughs> mocked, tried to tell us we weren't palatable to a culture that demands perfection, that the world was made for small bodies and that we were taking up too much space. See, there are only two women in my team whose rugby jersey is sized XXL. I am one of them. Shame. I turn and see my left side prop and her head drops, tears bleed through her armor and I think, no wonder some of us struggle to love the woman inside the mirror. The need to reclaim my body swells in my stretch marks, spills over my waistline and thunders and thighs too wide for skinny jeans. These thighs are the axis of this balancing act of women. And I know it is this that makes them uncomfortable. This body, my heavy body, was never made to fit in. And knowing this frees me when society mocks me for what I am not. My roles, cellulites and the inner part of my thighs that might jiggle, hashtag what gap, <laughs> is but the exterior of the woman, the woman that I do, the woman that I is. I is the sweet uplifting rush. I are the sweet uplifting rush. We are the sweet uplifting rush of birds circled in flight, too proud to ever fly under the radar. 
So from one rolling midsection and tameless will to another, conjurous hands that are larger than life with the swagger of a Leonidas heroine that can be anything from a size six to a size 18 plus. Your fat girl jokes do not define us. We do not consent to your inferiority. We are too bold, too boisterous, too powerful, running it straight and laying down those Tewila jukebox hits, one ignorant mind at a time. The second piece um, is about my journey of getting the traditional Samoan tattoo. So the men's tattoo is called Bea. Can you say that? Bea? Bea. Bea. So this is very detailed, uh, pretty much from the top all the way down to the knee. And there are only like small gaps of skin, so totally black with little parts of skin and the detail is shown there. Women, ours is called Malu. Can you say Malu? Malu. Nice. And Malu literally translates to protector, diamond, shade. And ours is very ornate, um, and a lot of the motifs in our malu um, allude to nature, our connection to nature, to water, to land. Um, and so this is a poem on that, so thank you. An owl chisel has bitten my skin, and as black marks tell this tale of Siamese demigods singing, it's a ta o fafine aile, ta o tane. Only the woman, only the woman get tattooed. Diving for enchanted treasures, the gods messed the lyrics up and came up singing. It's a ta o tane aile, ta o fafine. Only the men, only the men get the traditional tattoo. The breeze. Nonchalantly does the, what's up, bro, around the Apia hut. I sit with my 10 yards of material, pour more cigarettes and bottles of vodka encased in their duty-free packaging. My game face is secky and I'm expiring. I mean, I'm perspiring just a little. The Tufunga walks in with the swagger of a lead actor, takes out his Hollywood kit and lays out his altar chisels. Are you ready, he says, handing him the gifts I nod. Sulu Ape is Taika Waititi, three-in-one actor, director, producer. Motifs etched in his brilliant mind, all he draws on my thighs are three lines, middle, left, right. Breathe in and hold, he says, and as I breathe in, Taika picks up his hammer and his chisel, and he tap, tap, taps, black lines all the way down. He tap, tap, taps, black lines all the way down. The support actors wipe my blood with a damp muslin cloth. I breathe in sky. And he tap, tap, taps for tall stars and ngongo seagulls. I breathe in sea. And he tap, tap, taps avel starfish and jellyfish. I breathe in land. And he tap, tap, taps, angufe worms and goluse crosses. The vi'ali centipede crawled down the backs of my knees. Service of the past. Service of the future. Service of the untitled. Ainga. Church. Village. Nation. World. 
It's all or lots all, they said. See, I have not yet met the woman I am becoming, but I know that she stands on the shoulders of giants. She is the rib cages of Nafanua warriors. She is cookie, building empires with the hustle of a beast mode bloodline. It's all or lots all, they said. And as he... My kneecaps. I understand why. If I can handle this, I can handle anything. There is no turning back. I have made that sacred covenant between being Samoan and living Samoan. I am Malu, protector. I am Malu, shade. I am Malu, shield. I am Malu, diamond. I am Malu, I am Malu, I am Malu. The adorning of a Samoan queen. I had a question for you at the end of the first piece you did about how you had managed to get to the point that you've reached by the end of the poem where you feel so secure in your identity. And then I feel like perhaps the second poem was the answer to that question. Is that, would that be fair? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so have you, have you always had that, that really deep connection with your culture and has that always provided that sense of identity for you? Yeah, I think in parts. I think maybe, um, just alluding to your question about the first part of the poem, I think my team plays a big part of that. Um, where we're all kindness, I think, and positivity is a strategy. <laughs> um, and now, kind of, we have values and we kind of operate out of that. And so I feel like when that happened um, and we kind of had that fat shaming thing that happened, it almost brought us closer because we had each other's backs and our values are like excellence and whānau, family. Mm. Um, and so that kind of helped us all together. And definitely um, getting my tattoo was a journey, um, being able to claim that. I come from a very religious family and tattooing wasn't really allowed and a lot of my family said I shouldn't get it because it says in the Bible that you shouldn't spill blood. So that was a journey as, as well trying to go against my family to get it. But when I got it, my mum was like, oh, that looks quite cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, and now she told, and now like two of my other first cousins who are very religious um, want to get it. And it's about owning that God actually created us to be Samoan and we can own our Samoanness. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. And that also kind of relates to, I mean, the other three people on this panel kind of did pieces that were around safety in public in some ways. And one of the things that's really frustrating about discussions like these is, is that, as you've just alluded to, you and your team came up with a strategy to help yourselves kind of rise above that. But that shouldn't have to be what happens, right? We shouldn't have to be the ones coming up with the strategies. <laughs> So how do, we, how do we change this? Does anyone have any ideas about how, how we get to a point where we can feel safe in public? That I guess 
it could be something to do with what your own strategies are, but then it could be something to do with, I know a few people here are involved in youth education, and I don't know if that has a part to play, but I just wondered if anyone had any thoughts on that, much as it's a hard question, because ideally the answer is, other people would stop being shit, right? Yeah, that, that, the first step is, yeah, if, if, if men just could have a day off, that would be really yeah. good. Um, but um, my friend Holly Bourne, who is another amazing UKYA author, she taught me the best trick for street harassment is just start filming them with your phone, and they soon fucking stop, especially if they're workmen, because they will have their business will have a number on the side of a van. Or, of course, if, if they have a number on the side of the van, ring it. These people have to be accountable. Um, you know, I suppose the only saving grace, so my street harassment started when I was at like 26, 27. You know, I, I guess I dodged a bullet by not having it when I was in school uniform. But I go into schools and I say to girls, you know, like, who here has been harassed on the street in school uniform? And pretty much every single hand goes up. And, you know, and it just, and it still persists, you know, and it, you know, it affects me as well. Only I have, I guess, a layer on top of it, which is, oh, fuck, if, if they clock that I'm trans, they're definitely going to murder me, you know? So it's kind of, it, that's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess the same, possibly the same question that I kind of asked the first panel, but how do you, how do you deal with or process the, the, the physical toll that that takes on you? Because that, I mean, even that piece that you read, Kirsten, is very, it evokes that visceral tense response that everyone knows from having, if not something that severe, something like that happen on the street. So how, how does one process or deal with that visceral response when it's a thing that just keeps on happening? Yeah, I mean, um, therapy. <laughs> if you can afford it, talk to your friends. Um, you know, move around a lot, be strong in your body, you know. Um, but, I mean, for me... Um, uh, I really think, and one of the things I tried to put into my book was a sense of compassion and kindness. Um, and I guess um, I went through a period in my 20s when I was just really, really shitty at men. Like, I'd walk to work and I'd just walk, and I, I was walking past a guy, I'd just scowl at him. And um, because I'd just had so many experiences where I felt I'd been objectified, used... Um, yeah, um, now I'm the mother of two sons and I've, so I'm raising boys who I don't want to be like those men or that treated me badly. Um, so, um, we have pretty open conversations about things and one of the things we say is actually we don't care what we do, what you do, we just want you to be kind people and, and try and demonstrate what that, what that is. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think it's an impossible thing for the whole world to I th I think, do. Yeah, but I mean, ed education. I think I'm yeah. campaigning really hard in the UK at the moment to drop one maths lesson from the curriculum a week, and in that hour, sorry, maths teachers, mm -hmm. in in the hour, teach like emotional literacy and PSHE, and teach kindness, and teach feminism, and consent, and to never include your genitals with your face if you have to send a picture to your boyfriend. You know, <laughs> boobs or face, never together. You know, um, and it's about that. And, you know, you know, I've not used a lot of maths since school, and yet, you know, I could have really done with that information. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. That thing about emotional intelligence is like, why can that not be a core curriculum subject? Um, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I can't speak for New Zealand education, but in the UK, in the last 10 years or so, there's been this frenzied drive to kind of emulate the kind of education system they have in Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea, which they attain phenomenally highly, but they also have the highest rate of teen suicide in the world. So I'm like, this maybe isn't something we should actively court, would be my suggestion, but I think, yeah, let's take the foot off the accelerator towards academic excellence and use some of that time in school to talk about the way we, we relate to each other. Um, and I think, you know, I've, I've seen this work and I've seen this in schools where you can start to get through to both boys and girls about that this, these things we've, we've taken to be truths about the way, you know, that, that it's acceptable for girls to be catcalled. And even teenage girls have come to expect that, that that's not okay. And you can start to unteach some of those messages, I think. And that's an area you work in as well, right, right? Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. I was just going to say, like, I think it's, there's so much of a focus on, like, uh, in, uh, like that, that you've only got yourself, and that's, that's kind of it. But as soon as we kind of teach people to start, like, recognising each other's struggles, and that, that's, like, one of the things that will, will kind of, as a protective and one of those safety factors, is that, like, the people that you come across have have a story and a background and a struggle just as you do. Um, and when you, like, recognise that, that's a safety factor, I reckon. But it's also teaching that, like, emotional um, literacy, which is going to, yeah, which is going to make people kinder eventually also. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, which is surely quite an easy thing to teach. Like, just, just listen. Like, that's, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. No, awesome. I might add to that that with um, there's a mental health inquiry that's happening at the moment that will get wrapped up around October um, and the important role that council and um, community, um, faith-based communities, whatever they might be, and government have in wrapping around the education thing. It's a collective thing, I think. And, I, yeah, I know with the change of government, um, maybe for youth, which is the area that I'm in, the Minister for Youth has actually identified priorities, and I think that's important, mental health and wellbeing. Um, diversity, those um, are some of the language keywords that are coming and I think the role that government and council and community groups is really important as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, as I expected um, with eight people in this session, um, we are running a little late and I've just lost my microphone, it's fine. Um, however, we do have time for some questions, so um, if people could start, we have a roving mic, right? Do we have a roving mic? Yes, we have a roving mic, excellent. Um, okay, cool. Um, if people could maybe indicate if they have a question. Um, oh, we're just nicking the mic. Um, if people could start indicating if they have questions, have we already got some? Okay, because otherwise I'm going to ask a question in the meantime, which is, um, in your young adult novel, Clean, you tell some really interesting narratives of mental health and the way that they relate to intersectional identities. And in particular, a story of a trans girl who has an eating disorder partly in response to these things in her body that she doesn't want to have there. And it was just such a striking thing because I know trans people who have had that experience, but I'd never read a book about mental health or eating disorders in which that was the narrative. And so I just wondered whether that was a 
a particularly important thing for you and then how hard it is to kind of feel like you have to get that one narrative right because we don't have that many of those narratives, you know? And yeah, I mean, Kendall is the character and she was, she was quite deliberate in that I didn't want to do and I still haven't done a coming out novel. Mm. Um, a lot of readers ask, you know, when am I going to do that? And I'm going to, well, I've done the gender games and also lived it, so I'm kind of over it. Um, <laughs> like my job is imagining to be other people. Um, so, um, but with Kendall, I was interested, A, to imagine a future for myself in nine years' time. Kendall is nine years into her transition, and I was writing clean when I was about sort of two and a half years into my transition, I guess. So I was interested to wonder what life would be like when people stopped asking me questions like the one I, I read about. Um, but also, yeah, I mean, the, the bit that I was going to read um, today that I didn't read was going to be about my relationship with Instagram, since I quite notably started to look very sort of stereotypically sort of female and feminine and, and just everything around my sort of time on social media very much changed and, and my next book is, is about working in the fashion industry so I spent a whole bunch of time with fashion models as well which is not good for your mental health because the problem is none of them think they have eating disorders and they all do and, and they've all kind of gaslighted, gaslit themselves into thinking that eating next to nothing is fine and normal and, and they're actively encouraged. And so, yeah, at the time, you know, I was very loudly, louder than I am, I think, a few years later, just receiving these, these messages about, you know, you just cannot be thin enough. And I could see what could happen. You know, I could see how so easily, you know, this notion of you are a woman now and women are meant to be tiny. You cannot be tiny enough. And just when you think you are tiny enough, they create a new dress size, like minus two or something. And you're just kind of like, what? Surely that would be like inside out. Um, <laughs> and so, so I could, yeah, Kendall, she's a full, I hope she's a fully realized character, but she was also a bit of a thought experiment. Because I, I could, there was a time when I could see myself going that way. And, and I'm, I'm glad that I didn't. Yeah. Do we have questions? Be bold. If you were sitting here going, I really want to ask, but I'm too nervous about looking stupid, you should definitely put your hand up. Although now we'll know the next person who puts their hand up. <laughs> but that's always me at Writers' Festival, so when I'm out there. So, anybody? Yay! Awesome, hey! <laughs> and if you want to direct it to a certain person, feel free um, to do that. I think probably Juno and Ray. Um, I work with young people and uh, I'm really amazed constantly by how accepting of difference they are nowadays compared to when I was at school. I look at them with wonder and awe and uh, I wonder if with your experience of uh, being with young people for studying for books and with your own work, what you see. <laughs> you have it. Um, yeah, I, I think certainly, certainly it's been cool to be a part of this. So, I, so I, my first book came out in 2012 and I'm in schools all the time. It's so lovely now that when I stop going, you kind of get a bit of a two for one if you book me to come and do an author talk because yes, I will come and sort of talk about the virtues of reading and writing, but also you can make sure the old meta-trans person tick two boxes, tick to diversity box, chick, chick. You might be able to apply for a grant if you get a trans person in. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and um, um, 
And what's really lovely is when usually an amazing librarian, and a big shout out to the librarians, when a librarian sort of takes you behind the secret curtain in the library and says, I'd like you to meet our pride group. And it's like all the LGBTQ kids. And like the notion of when I was at school in the 90s that there would have been a pride or a gay straight alliance or a queer group, that's amazing at how far we've come that there are now out kids in high schools and they are always wildly supportive of each other, for the most part, but kids can be shady full stop. So I think, you know, kids will be vile, you know, regardless of whether you're trans or not. But by and large, they almost sometimes own them as well. They're like, this is, this, this is our trans one. You know, our school has a trans one now. And, and they're, they're quite protective and proud of them often, which is, it's very heartwarming. Yeah, I think uh, I've worked with young people a bit, but definitely in, in uh, kind of, especially in like uh, LGBT circles. And so like, uh, what are their experiences in, in that group are like exactly that, so supportive and so encouraging and so kind and good to one another. Um, but then the stories they tell of existing in the wider network of the world seems almost like, uh, getting worse, uh, like, as in, as in everyone is, like, looking in their little groups but not enough at each other um, or not enough to, like, hear those those stories from somewhere else. So it ends up sometimes, and, and hopefully this can be changed, but, um, but it sometimes starts feeling like, yes, there is so much love and support and, and when you've found your people, and that's amazing because, of course, we all need to find our people, but, like, at the expense sometimes of, of being heard um, wider than that. Um, so I guess that's the next kind of challenge is like once we're starting to feel safe again uh, with, with our people, how do we, where do those stories go then, maybe? Mm, yeah. <laughs> Have we got one more? Because otherwise, oh no, we do. Okay. Oh. Okay. No? All good? Okay. And we've got one more? Yes, we do. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Brianna. What would be your advice to women who have been kind of raised to internalise a lot of the ideas about what being a woman is, uh, about, like, undoing that sort of indoctrination that you can get as you're being raised to be a specific idea of femininity, uh, especially within regards to, like, I know that I was raised to accept men's compliments and street calling. I, that was like, oh, you know, it's so nice to be complimented by a man on the street that you don't know who's six feet tall and <laughs> could crush you. <laughs> um, what, what, what's your advice to women? Because I, I, I come into contact with them all the time, women who believe that um, their self-worth is derived from those ideas. I might actually hand a microphone to the front row here as well. Yeah. So that, um, yeah. They um, so, uh, yeah, I'd like to answer that because um, I'm, I'm, I was raised to be a pleaser and a good girl. And, um, yeah, and this is what women look like. My mother was a beauty queen. Um, Miss Manawatu. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, in the last few years, I've actually joined a private Facebook group uh, of women. And we discuss sex, relationships, um, all sorts of things that we, we, um, I didn't do growing up. And um, they, these women have helped me so much with understanding relationships and 
um, when people are passive-aggressive, when men say certain things, when women say certain things. So I would just totally recommend finding yourself a community of women who you trust and who are there to talk to you. Because um, I have to say that my outlook has changed hugely since um, I've been communicating with these women. We sometimes meet in person as well. So, yeah. Um, I just wondered whether anyone down in the front row had anything to add to that. Um, sure, I'll add something. So I think a lot of times, I'm really a firm believer that um, most of our answers are actually in our questions, like in learning how to ask ourselves things that make us question the world around us. And so one of the things that I would say is, when, when someone is invested in that, like the question is, so who benefits from you continuing to believe that your value is only tied to what a man believes of you? Who benefits in that, right? And when we actually start to ask our, like to really interrogate that question, we can start to see where our identity is tied into this larger system of oppression, right? Because what you want people to get at is like, oh, I'm a totally a tool of patriarchy right now, and patriarchy has decided what my value is totally based on external things that keep me in a system of hierarchy. That's what we want people to get to. But the only way that people get to that is by beginning to strategically ask themselves questions about whose agenda is this belief that I have? Is it my agenda, or is it an agenda that someone has put on me? Um, unfortunately, we have to wrap up now, but um, you can come and ask more questions at the signing table of all of these writers. Okay. <laughs> um, so, I'm told, or I just, I just already knew, really, um, that, <laughs> that Sonia Renee Taylor, Tay Tibble, and, yeah, Sonia Renee and Tay have, both have sessions tomorrow. Um, do you want to tell us what time those are? Because... I don't know. Uh, if you don't know either, that's fine. And Juno has a, a, a panel on why? Oh, on Freedom Papers on YA. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So we could easily have done an hour with every single one of these people, and I'm very My sorry session is tomorrow to. here. Yeah. It's tomorrow here at one o'clock in the afternoon. Um, so you can come ask questions at the signing table. You can come to one of the sessions tomorrow. Um, or you can go out into the lobby and form your own coven and start sorting some of this out, which I would highly recommend. Um, thank you very, very much for coming this evening. Um, and also thank you so much to our writers and speakers who have shared. You have all been incredibly brave and generous um, with what you've shared. And I'm super grateful for it. I'm sure the whole audience is as well. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.